Welcome to the Monty Hall Effect. I'm Tola Martz. My friend Tim Lloyd and I are both aerospace engineers, with over 40 years between us in the industry, and film buffs. In this podcast, we'll be discussing science fiction films. Science. How well do the scientific ideas in the film reflect real science? Fiction. Do the film's plot and characterization take the viewer on a fun or intriguing journey? And film. Does the movie make the most of cinematography so that it works better in conveying its ideas than it would in a book or graphic novel or play? At the end of the discussion, we'll give the film three ratings. One for science, one for fiction, and one for film. There will be spoilers for whatever film we're discussing, but we'll try to keep spoilers for other films to a minimum. In today's podcast, we'll be discussing the 2007 Danny Boyle film Sunshine. But first, a joke. So it's the 2025 meeting of the International Astronomical Union, and all the countries are gathered together, and the Polish delegation stands up, and they go to the microphone. And, and by the way, I'm Polish, my family's from Bydgoszcz, so don't send nasty notes about Polish jokes. So the Polish delegation says, ladies and gentlemen, we have an, a, an exciting announcement for you. We are going to launch a manned mission to the surface of the sun. And there's this incredible outcry in the room. Oh my gosh, a, a manned mission to the sun? That's impossible. Uh, what possible materials could you use? Uh, how do you stay cool? What do you do about the radiation? There's no way this would possibly work. And the Poles wait for the room to die down a little bit. And they say, ladies and gentlemen, it's easy. We're going to go at night. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Uh, I'll be here all week. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the Monty Hall Effect. I'm Tola. I'm Tim. And we are starting this podcast because we are both in aerospace and we are film buffs. We dis- love seeing good science fiction. And because we work in aerospace, we thought it would be fun to talk about the intersection of science and film. Yeah, and, and this is uh, the movie that we've chosen for today to start off with, I, I think is, is probably chosen because it, it demonstrates a lot of the things that we want to talk about in this podcast. Uh, the combination of really good science, there's an excellent scientific advisor on this particular film, uh, and wonderful storytelling and visuals. Um, and so uh, do we want to start uh, introducing the film for... For this uh, episode? Sure. So I'll, I'll say it's Danny Boyle's film Sunshine. And Sunshine was released in 2007. Uh, Danny Boyle is a director that a lot of people know. He got his start with uh, Train Spotting and, um, oh, there was a, what was the one about the murder? The, the roommates who murder their, their roommate? Oh, I think I missed that one. Uh, that was one of his first films. And, and he did, uh, Slumdog Millionaire, which is a somewhat controversial film, and he did Millions, and he, he's this great Irish director, and he decided to make a definitive science fiction film, and, and somewhat of a love letter to 2001, I think. And uh, t- can you, can, Tim, can you talk about, you alluded to the fact that he got uh, 
he really tried to get good science advice in the making of this film. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, and um, if if any of our listeners have uh, either the Blu-ray or I, th- or I think the iTunes version of this movie, uh, you can listen to an audio commentary by the scientific advisor for this film. Um, it was uh, Professor Brian Cox, uh, who is uh, from, from Manchester, uh, uh, as well as some of the actors on this film. Uh, and they, they spotted Brian, um, I think, because they were looking for a, uh, a young uh, a young physicist, uh, one who looked very telegenic, um, and and that is that is definitely true for Professor Cox. Uh, in fact, I think he's he's probably even better looking than Killian Murphy. Um, and uh, Brian Cox works at the uh, at CERN um, in uh, in I think it's in France and in um, in Switzerland, and uh, does uh, you know, high energy high energy particle physics. Uh, but he's also an excellent science communicator and has been on a number of amazing BBC uh, shows, um, including the Wonders of the Universe, uh, which of course he says in his beautiful Mancunian accent, uh, which I will not uh, embarrass myself by trying to replicate here. Um, so they brought in Brian Cox from from fairly early on in the process and of, of writing this film. Uh, so a, the script here is by Alex Garland, uh, who's a, an amazing filmmaker in his own right, um, and brought him on fairly early to consult on you know the content of you know the physics of this and the the, the way in which this movie is set off. The the MacGuffin uh, is a it, it's a pure pure physics MacGuffin, uh, and so they they brought him in for that, uh, and he ended up being a, a very strong influence, not only on the Killian Murphy character uh, of, of the, um, the scientist, the physicist in, in this movie, but, but on the, just on the making of the film as a whole. Uh, and so I would certainly encourage folks, if you have the opportunity, to listen to the audio commentary uh, by Professor Cox. It's, uh, it's, it's certainly quite wonderful, and, and he does go into a lot of detail on this interaction between good storytelling and good science uh, in, in a movie like this. Do you want to talk about the MacGuffin? Because there's something wrong with the sun. There's something wrong with the sun, and it's... So there's the how much is expressed in the movie, and then there's the backstory. Uh, and uh, Alex Garland spent a lot of time really working on the backstory, uh, initially on his own, and, and then again with, with Brian Cox on this. Um, so what's presented in the movie is you sort of get bits and pieces of it as the movie builds. Um, is that you know the sun is dying, um, and if there if nothing is done, then uh, it will eventually start to uh, to fade to the point where you can no longer sustain life on Earth. Uh, and you see this in some in towards the end of the film. There's a an image of uh, a very snowy scene outside of Sydney, Australia, uh, just indicating not just normally how known for its sun. not normally known for its high snowfall. It's not a not a good place to, to bring your your skis um, if uh, if you're looking for that sort of thing, but uh, the the backstory behind this is uh, there's there's a concept uh, of something called a uh, a cue ball, which is uh, a thing that I don't fully understand the physics behind, um, but it is a uh, a piece of uh, supersymmetric particles that have been uh, stuck together, a leftover from the Big Bang. Uh, it is apparently more stable than normal matter, uh, and uh, so it just sort of has been floating around in the universe since the Big Bang, and has managed to drift itself into the heart of our sun, and in doing so has stopped uh, the reaction process that is uh, keeping our sun alive. And so in order to 
restart the sun, uh, you've got to take a giant uh, fusion bomb to the middle of the sun. Um, and unfortunately, they uh, they can't go at night. Um, oh, what? So, oh, all the best laid plans of mice and men. Um, and I yeah. thought it was. I thought the. I thought the cue ball was supposed to be near the surface or something, right? Because it it does strain credulity that you could get the nuclear bomb to the center of the sun. But like, you could maybe hypothetically get a nuclear bomb to near the surface of the sun. And the other thing is, the center of the sun is basically one giant nuclear bomb, right? But the surface of the sun, yeah. pe- people don't get. The surface of the sun is just a bunch of hot gas, right? The center of the sun has this huge fusion reaction and then the heat takes like a million years to get from the center to the surface like any given bit of energy kind of bounces around on the inside and and eventually gets to the surface where it's like this 6,000 degree gas right basically hydrogen gas at 6,000 degrees right yeah yeah and so you know it gets a little interesting right in terms of you know how much of the physics they really want to get into um and you see some of that towards towards the end when when uh when the the bomb is making its way, you know, in into the sun, um, you get these sort of weird, sort of quantum effects of gravity and time and whatever else. Um, but uh, I don't know. Maybe we're getting a little ahead of ourselves uh, talking about the end. Uh, I, I just want um, to point out one thing about that: when time and space fuse and all that, that is a that is a trope in science fiction films about like. And then time and space will fuse, and who knows what will happen, right? And so there's this horrible, horrible. Uh, Cloverfield sequel that premiered right after the Super Bowl a couple years ago. And they basically made it, it was kind of a poor man's uh, uh, what was the film where they were out at Neptune and and uh, the ship was haunted? Event Horizon, right? So this oh, yeah. this Cloverfield sequel was basically a horrible Event Horizon ripoff. But it was like, well, you know, once time and space fuse, uh, who knows what will happen, right? And so... You know, great old ones will be uh, coming through the rift yeah, ex- in uh, space-time. Ex- exactly. Yeah. So there's a there's a bit of that in this movie. There's a bit of that trope because because it allows the writer to sort of throw all the physics out the window at that point, right? Which which they kind of do uh, at the very, very end. But yeah, so maybe, maybe we're getting a little uh, ahead of ourselves. So... Uh, they're on their way to the sun, and they're behind a giant shield, right? And uh, uh, it's a, it's a, their bomb is the size of Manhattan, I think they said, which is a very big bomb indeed. Yes. And uh, so they have this giant shield, and then they've got a little smaller version of that shield, and then behind that is the actual crew, is where the crew lives, right? And uh, things get weird. Everything's going along. Oh, and, and I should say, uh, there was an earlier version seven years before uh, that was lost. Uh, one of the things they, they say in this movie is that when you, get, when you get really close to the sun or inside the orbit of Mercury, uh, you can't communicate with Earth. W- what do we think of that uh, theory, Tim? It's, uh, it's pretty close. It's pretty close. Um, so we have... Sent, uh, we have sent a number of, of probes, uh, not just to uh, to fly by Mercury to orbit Mercury, uh, but also to uh, get pretty darn close to the Sun. Uh, in fact, um, I can probably open up my browser tab on this one again. But there is a mission called the Parker Solar Probe, uh, which is, uh, I believe, currently in orbit around the Sun. And uh, it, it's set up in a very interesting orbit uh, that allows it to pass um, about 4% of, of the distance from the Earth to the Sun. Uh, it gets as close as that uh, to get uh, really up, up close and personal uh, observations of the Sun. 
and then uh, it pulls pulls back out again um, on the opposite side of its orbit uh, to um, to transmit back to Earth. Uh, and so it does have to work in that environment. And and the solution for the Parker Solar Probe is that it's going to be transmitting when it's farther from the sun than when it's actually making observations. They kind of tweak tweak the tweak the distance just a little bit. Um, they they sort of lose calm with Earth uh, a little bit farther out than than the orbit of Mercury, if I remember correctly. Um, whereas uh, I think in, if you were actually on a mission to the to the sun, you would uh, you would lose that that communication a lot closer uh, to the sun than they did here. Yeah, and this gets at that question that 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 you want to talk about in this whole series about engineering decisions versus storytelling, right? Um, yeah. You know, if if the scientists had been able to talk to Mission Control through the you know the the first hour and a half of this film, which they would in real life, it would have made for a very different film, right? Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's the uh, the other part that that I find really interesting about the, this movie is that it is it is about human psychology in the end, um, and what do you do with isolation, um, and and isolation both you know one person amongst a crew of, of you know, seven or eight, uh, and just isolation from your family, from humanity. Um, and so once, once they've lost that, that communication with Earth, um, the, the feeling amongst the crew just changes. Uh, and, and you see that immediately with, with the fistfight that breaks out um, after, uh, after Kappa finishes sending his, his message home and, and takes so long that uh, no one else can send their messages after him. That's right. Uh, it's the primary conflict is set up even before they officially lose communication with Earth, and it's between Mace and Kappa. And boy, when you talk about uh, one of the things you can't talk about this movie and not talk about is the amazing cast, right? So uh, you pronounce it's Killian. That's how that's how we should pronounce Killian. His name. I, that's that's my. I, I have enough red hair to think that I know how to pronounce uh, uh, an Irish name like that. But I'm going to go with Killian. Killian Murphy, uh, who people know from 28 Days Later, and he was uh, the Scarecrow in the first two Batman, uh, Christopher Nolan Batman movies, and he's just, he's been in a bunch of stuff. Um, as the physicist, Robert Kappa, and mm-hmm. uh, then Chris Evans as uh, Mace, the lead engineer on the project. And of course, Chris Evans is Captain America, and you know he was in the horrible Fantastic Four movies, uh, but but just you know one of my favorite actors, and also a guy who for me uh, got me interested in Captain America as a character. I never really liked Captain America, mm-hmm. but he was so mm-hmm. great. He was really the heart of the MCU. So so he's the lead engineer on the project, and so they 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 have this conflict right away, and the people who lead the mission in some senses sort of sit back and let these two. Um, be antagonists to each other and you know kappa represents scientific method and uh questioning and understanding variables and understanding uncertainty and mace is like we've got to save the human race right and so is absolutely uh goal focused as my old boss used to say bias for action um and so we see that in the first three minutes of the movie where as you say these guys get in a fist fight and i'll point out that uh, during that fist fight, uh, Rose Byrne, who plays Cassie, uses the intercom system to to get everybody else to show up. And I just I just want to point out that the ship has an intercom system, and maybe we'll maybe we'll come back to that concept uh, a little bit later in the discussion about the movie. Yes, 
Yeah, and the cast. I mean, uh, just just to to keep building on the cast is just uh, it's fantastic. And and um, you know, I I'll, I'll have to point out that you know you in your in your opening joke you use the term manned spaceflight, right? And this is this is uh, you know that term is is a bit dated. Uh, and I'm not going to date you um, in terms of your age, Tola. But um, you know, it is it's something that's actually not used anymore because it's not it's not descriptive, right? So what we have is. Um, you know, we have at least two genders of, of astronauts uh, on board this this uh, this craft. We have um, what looks to be a very uh, international uh, crew um, and also a very international cast uh, as far as the casting goes. Um, so you've got, you've got Killian Murphy um, and Chris Evans. Um, you also have the amazing Cliff Curtis um, as uh, as Searle, who's this like very very interesting um, you know psychologist character um, uh, and and a wonderful Maori um, actor. Um, and then our uh, captain of the ship, uh, Kanida, played by uh, Hiroyuki Sanada, um, is also super amazing in this. Um, and he, he shows up in a, in a bunch of other movies, including The Avengers, and, and um, I think he's in at least one season of, uh, of Westworld. And then um, the uh, biologist, played by Michelle Yeoh, uh, who's, uh, again, I think probably a little... Uh, understated in this role um, but but her role is is quite powerful um, playing the the biologist Corazon and then Benedict Wong as as Trey uh, this like brilliant mathematician who's put in charge of navigating this ship uh, through through space and and through some of these interesting maneuvers that they have to to go through um, and then finally of course uh, Mark Strong as as the antagonist pinbacker um, who you never actually really see his his real face, but, uh, he's, he, he's, he does this wonderful, wonderful, uh, antagonist representation in this film. Um, so it's the kind of, it's the kind of crew that you would expect to see on a mission like this, where like, it's, you know, you get the sense that like, this is the last, like, and, and like, um, Kappa says at some point, this is the last best hope, which is maybe a, a trope, a movie trope, but, um, this is well, they, the crew that you would send, right? Well, like, well they did say they used the like, last, have left. They, they said they used the last of the fish, fissile materials to make, you know, the Earth only had like two Manhattan-sized nuclear bombs worth of easily accessed nuclear materials, right? So if this one doesn't work, they don't have enough nuclear material to make another bomb. Yeah, so it feels it feels very much like you could extend that maybe to the crew, right? So the astronauts on the crew, you would assume, are taken from... You know, perhaps uh, Kanida is is part of the Japanese Space Agency, uh, JAXA, um, or some other you know whatever that equivalent is at that at that point in time. Um, you know, some of these other folks maybe came from other existing astronaut corps, um, but the the rest of the crew uh, could have been drawn from from anywhere, right? You know, Kappa is basically there because he's the guy who designed the thing, uh, and so you have to wonder who his counterpart was on Icarus One, uh, but but certainly. Um, someone who had you know, more training or, or more expertise or, um, you know, was more uh, you know, ready, at least, for, for a, a trip of that magnitude. So you're saying this is the B team, right? The A team went with the first Icarus mission. I think it, I think it is. I think that's that's a thing that, that it, it comes across a little bit, um, mm-hmm. I think, especially in, in Kappa's character is, you know, when, when you see him, you know, getting into that spacesuit for the first time and mm-hmm. and uh, being reassured that, like, you know, don't worry, you've you've practiced this, and it's like, well, has he has he had right. enough time to learn how to do all this stuff? Well, it's an interesting idea that this would be the B team because one of the things, one of the ways that movies can get science wrong is in not 
projecting what astronauts are actually like, right? You and I have been lucky mm-hmm. enough to know some astronauts, and they really are like the best of the best of the best, right? They're the human beings that have been down selected. You know, start with a million people that want to be pilots in the military, and you get down to ten thousand people that actually go through military flight training, and you get down to a thousand who become military pilots, and you get down to a hundred who become test pilots, and you get down to fifty who uh, apply for the astronaut corps. And, you know, pretty soon, at least in terms of pilots and commanders, you know, you just, this is, it's this incredible winnowing down. And so you get people who are hyper ambitious and hyper bright and hyper creative and hyper uh, thoughtful, right? And so what, you know, one of the problems I have just to diverge for a second with Prometheus Right. Is that you have this crew that's basically a bunch of psychopaths that get to the planet and immediately start fighting with each other and making terrible decisions in a way that like eh, professionals just don't do. Right. Much less astronauts. Yeah. Right. So anyhow, back to back to Sunshine. I like the idea that maybe because these guys were the B team, it would explain some of, you know, they're not you know, they're not as crisp on some of this stuff as you might think an astronaut core that's trying to save the world would be yeah yeah and you think about you know they said they had seven years right since since they lost icarus one how much time does that you know does that take to you know did they start building up the crew right away right did they did they already have a second icarus you know ready to go um you know maybe uh maybe they had you know redundancy what we we would call being hardware rich uh in in the aerospace world um you got your backup already ready did you have your backup crew uh much like the apollo missions did um, where you know your your backup crew was always there, always training with the primary crew, uh, or was this a like just a hail mary situation where they they put one together and they said, well, this one darn well better work, and and then when it didn't, they said, well, crap, now what, uh, and had to throw something together. Um, it's not not entirely clear, but you could you could interpret it a couple different ways maybe. So so after that first initial burst of conflict between the physicist and the engineer, we get to the heart of the matter, which is the crew uh, goes past Mercury and for plot reasons, uh, passing through Mercury's magnetosphere, which is a thing, right? Mercury actually has a really has a good magnetosphere like Earth. Um uh, they they detect signals from the first Icarus. Lo and behold, the first Icarus is out there, and uh, they have to decide what to do. It's in a it's in a parking orbit basically. It's it's orbiting the sun, uh, but not going anywhere. Just just circling the sun, and so they have to decide whether to go intercept the first Icarus. Do you wanna you wanna talk about that? Yeah. So so initially, this is a question of. Uh trying to figure out what happened. Um, and then it becomes a question of redundancy. Uh, so, so again, right, as, as they were building the first Icarus, right, were they planning ahead for a second one? Uh, and the decision comes initially, starts off with, well, this is our only other bomb. Uh, and so we've got one with us on the Icarus 2. If something goes wrong with this one, it sure would be nice to have a backup. Uh, because you know they've they've never tested this right. There's no there was no Manhattan Project blowing up you know small versions of this out in the New Mexico desert, uh, you presume, uh, because these things are so huge, and so they don't even know if it's what's going to happen when when they ignite the thing, and so ultimately it, you know it comes down to we need another one, uh, so we may as well go get it, uh, and then uh, it turns out there's another good reason 
to, to go and, and get another ship, uh, which is that they're about to run out of oxygen. Uh, so you, <laughs> you talk about how we get there. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so before, sure. But before we get to that, I just want to point out that they, this is where we start to expand this difference of view between Kappa and Mace, right? So Kappa, the physicist thinks in terms of, again, unknown unknowns and known unknowns. And what are the equations that govern this thing and how well, what are our confidence intervals on these things? And Mace, the engineer is like, look, we have a mission plan. We should go execute that mission plan. Uh, and it's interesting to me because there's a TV show that you and I both hate uh, called Big Bang Theory, <laughs> right? And uh, they purport to talk about the difference between engineers and scientists, and they do a terrible job at it the way they kind of do a terrible job at everything. But, uh, but there is a difference between engineers and scientists, right? And scientists really want to, they have theories and they build tests to prove or disprove those theories and you build up enough tests and theories and you can develop a working model of things. And engineers by and large tend to say, we're gonna come up with a process, we're gonna basically throw ping pong balls at that process as hard as we can to see if we can break it. And at some point we're gonna say that process is good, it's kind of a cake, we're gonna take the cake out of the oven and we're gonna eat the cake, right? And so it's a, it's a profoundly different view of how you manage risk and uncertainty and uh, they really do a, I think a very very nice job in this movie and I think that decision about whether to go intercept the Icarus one is really at the heart of the movie and and it's interesting too because the captain basically leaves it up to the physicist um, the captain says look we are basically uh, we are a uh, little crew on top of a nuclear bomb the guy who understands the nuclear bomb should make this decision and so Kappa says yeah let's go intercept the Icarus one but then yeah. bad things yeah and, and it's it, it it's a thing that shows up in the uh in the commentary from brian cox as well um he, you know he points out that the decision that kappa is asked to make is not it's not the kind of decision that a scientist in that position is is comfortable making um right he, he says that they're you know he's trained as a physicist to know you know to know where the edge of his knowledge is um right and then explore beyond that um, right. That's what, you know, that's what you build a, you know, large Hadron Collider to do. Um, but, but it's, it's, it is rooted in that knowledge and that understanding of their, their domain expertise. Um, and the, and the, the decision that, uh, that Mace is making is a, is a risk based decision. Right. And so it, like, you know, like I said, it, it has pieces of risk. It has, you know, what's the, what's the likelihood of, something going wrong in all of this, like all the different steps that it takes to go from, we are safely attached to the back of our existing heat shield and, and bomb and move over to the other one, get the thing that we need and then come back. Uh, there are so many steps in there and there's so much risk associated with each one that you can, you could do the calculation and we have, you know, like you said, we have methods and, and uh, processes for doing that kind of, of evaluation, but it is very different from asking a physicist, uh, is this going to work or not? Um, so, so then something goes wrong. Right. Um, when, uh, when they go to start to, uh, to shift over, uh, to, to meet with the, with the Icarus one, uh, there's a miscalculation. And, uh, I think this is, this is another, another thing that's, that happens in the engineering world is, is that you get very bright people, um, uh, like, like our navigator here. Um, he, he makes a mistake, um, because he, 
he is a person who is not used to making mistakes. Uh, and so he's, you know, he's focused on all these calculations and he's figuring out this orbit transfer and, and like, there's so many moving pieces um, and he forgets to do one calculation, uh, which is how do we keep, uh, keep the heat shield from functioning, uh, from, from burning up uh, as we do this, this translation maneuver. And so in doing so, um, something's damaged on the outside of the, of the sun shield, uh, and so they have to go outside and fix it, and that involves changing the orientation of the craft with respect to the sun. And, uh, and here's another risk calculation. Right. What's the in this case the likelihood of damaging the vehicle is almost 100. percent You know that as soon as as those those rotating communications towers get hit by the sun, they're just going to fry, uh, and they're gone. Um, and so that's the that's the trade off that they have to make. Um, the part that they don't even think about, and, 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 they, and they point out that we and they point out that we don't need the comm towers anymore because we don't have yeah, comms with yeah. us. At this point, right. at, at this point, the yeah. mission is not even about getting home. The mission is about delivering the bombs, um, and so you you have to you have to make that trade off. But the part they don't think about uh, when when the uh, when the comm towers catch on fire is is a thing that I thought wasn't explained very well on film, which is uh, somehow um, you see this beautiful shot of a comm tower spinning out from behind the, the heat shield, bursts into flames, and then it cuts to fire inside the habitable volume of the spacecraft uh, in the oxygen garden, this, this amazing thing that they have um, to, to keep the crew alive on their, on their way to the sun. Uh, and, it's, and it's explained, um, again, I'm getting this from, from Brian Cox's uh, commentary, um, in the script, it's, it's light reflects off of the comm tower and into one of the windows uh, on that uh, oxygen garden. And it's so bright that it just immediately catches everything on fire in the oxygen garden. And we call that a glint, right? When you have a reflect, refre- reflected bit of light from one thing onto another yeah. thing, that's called a glint, right? And it's the kind of thing that, you know, yeah, you calculate it, maybe, th- um, if you thought about it. Well, actually, it, it's fairly easy to calculate, right? So sunlight at the Earth is about 1,400 watts per square meter, right? And let's say you are... Uh, let's give them the benefit of the doubt, and you are a tenth that distance. You're ninety percent of the way to the sun, right? Which is I'm going to exaggerate for effect, right? So you're only a tenth the distance. So your surface area, complicated math, you have a hundred times the energy, right? So you've got fourteen hundred forty thousand watts per square meter, which is a lot. Um, but it's still the problem is the oxygen garden is big and the glint is really short. And even if the comm tower was, let's say, 10 square meters. Right. So you've got one point four million watts, one point four million watts for like a half second is really not that much energy. Right. And and you and I as engineers and and the dirty little secret of engineering, by the way, anybody who's taken high school physics like 90% of what we do as engineers is applying high school physics. It's just understanding, first of all, it's the other 10% that's that's hard, but it's also understanding which equations qualify for which situations, right? But the whole glint thing, the punchline is this movie, I think, constantly overstates how quickly things would heat up from the sun. As you get closer, it is the inverse squared law. So the closer you get, the more you're heating things up for sure. And inside the orbit of Mercury, things, you know, as, as you get closer, things things would get weird. But it wouldn't be 
the way they show it in here, where like a half second of exposure to the sun instantly destroys everything. Like that's that's as you get really, really close to the sun, not not where we're talking about here. So so the whole thing with the glint is a little bit hokey, but it does serve the purpose of first we first we took away communications with Earth, so we isolated the crew from Earth, and then we take away basically their future. Right. Once the oxygen garden is gone, boom! It's it's a one way mission, right? They're not they're not yeah, going to get take back away to their it. future and increase the uh, increase the stakes of all of the interpersonal conflicts. Um, because one of the uh, unfortunate ways that you can solve a resource problem like that is that you can reduce the number of people on board, um, which is uh, you know not not the place where you want to go, um, but it's it's you know it's brought up as a potential solution. Do you want to talk about this? Because you actually have, have spent a bunch of time looking at how people breathe in space and how you make sure people can stay breathing. Do you want to give a, a, an overview of how that works? Yeah. So, so in this, in the context of this mission, what we're, what we're led to believe is, uh, so you've got, uh, what is it? So I can never keep track seven or eight people on board. Um, it's a fairly decent sized vessel. Um, you could say maybe it's, I don't know, twice, maybe three times the total volume of the International Space Station um, for the craft itself, not counting, not counting the bomb. Um, and so, you know, those people are, you know, they're, they're consuming some of the oxygen in the air at any given point in time. They're exhaling carbon dioxide and water vapor and, and heat and that kind of thing. And um, what is uh, on the Icarus 2 uh, and the Icarus 1 is they have this oxygen garden, uh, which is what we would call a, uh, basically it's a, it's a closed loop system. So for a mission this long, if you wanted to take enough uh, oxygen with you um, so that you were continually replenishing the oxygen, um, it would be so much more massive that, that you would just cut into the mass of the payload, in this case, the mass of the bomb. Um, and so in order to save on mass, you use recyclers, in this case, plants. Uh, plants are uh, very efficient at, at doing that sort of thing, um, taking in carbon dioxide and uh, putting out oxygen and various other nice things, and some of them you can eat. Uh, and also it's, it's kind of a really nice thing to be able to walk into a garden uh, when you're uh, millions of miles from home uh, and see a bunch of green things. Uh, so it's also good for, for psychology. Um, and uh, from, from the way that we, we see them extinguish the fire, uh, they also open a bunch of oxygen bottles. So, so we're, we're, we're shown that they also have, have some backup on board. Uh, and and you, would, you would certainly want that for, you know, in case you got a leak, for example, uh, or in case you did have a small fire, you would want to be able to replenish the oxygen that you had on board uh, from, from oxygen that was stored in a bottle uh, at a higher pressure. So you could quickly feed that leak uh, until someone was able to patch it. Um, the, the, the part that, uh, is sort of glossed over, um, in terms of, of air on board this vehicle is the giant, giant volume of the bomb, uh, which is apparently filled with air for some reason. Right. Which it wouldn't be, which it, just to be clear, would not be in real life, right? There's no way, if you have a Manhattan sized nuclear bomb, unless you need the air for the operation of the bomb, you would never create a pressurized space that's the size of Manhattan, 
around the bomb, right? You would just leave it in a vacuum, and you would have people go over in spacesuits to do Certainly. what they need yeah. to do. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's, you know, again, it, it's, a, it's a storytelling choice because it makes for really cool visuals uh, uh, with the fight at the end. Um, but... There's yeah, there's there's sort of two reasons why you would never want to do that. Uh, one is is just the physics of it, um, and and I'm not a nuclear physicist, but I can read Wikipedia, and it tells me that whenever you do an experiment like this, you want to create a vacuum first, um, especially for the kind of thing that they're doing. Uh, and the other reason is is leaks. Um, so not only would you have this giant volume of air that you have to maintain, um, is that it has this giant surface area, right? This huge cube. And you have to design and build that thing to not have any leaks in it whatsoever, um, because you know even you know a tenth of one percent of that surface area, if that were to leak, uh, that's a huge area, uh, and so you'd be constantly trying to make up the air uh, or going out and trying to patch things. The other effect of that is that when they start running out of air, and then you see a couple scenes later, and they're going through a space that's like I don't know. 100 meters tall or 50 meters tall and the size of Manhattan. You're like, you have all the air that you Still need. You there. have all the air yeah. you're going to need for this crew for 100 years. Fine. Yeah, just go live in there. Um, or, or you know, circulate the air or whatever. Um, so, again, dramatic decision. So now they're out of time. You know, they're, they're going to be out of time. They're out of communication. Uh, and things get weird because they go to the other ship and they find that the crew... So here we need to talk about the sunroom, right? Mm -hmm. And we have to backtrack a little bit. It's shown that the Icarus 2 has a room that's the only bit that isn't behind a sun shield. And it's this room that you can go to and then it's got computer controlled uh, light. Uh, the amount of light that can get into the room is controlled by the computer. And uh, they show Searle, the psychiatrist, um, at that room on the Icarus 2, looking at the sun, standing in front of the sun, and he's wearing sunglasses, and he's got, like, he's got some stuff on his skin, right? Like, he's getting some blistering or some, some uh, I don't know what, what you want to call it, but um, he's been spending too much time in the sunroom. So so then you go to the Icarus 2, or the Icarus 1, they go to the, the old Icarus, and the whole crew is in the, the Icarus 1 sunroom, and they've turned the they turned the room to full brightness, and they're burnt to a crisp. They're burnt to ash, basically that collapses when 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 they touch it. Um, so so something weird happened in regards to the sunroom, and these people look like they quietly allowed themselves so, so to the be sun room, to ash. So so the sunroom. So so if you were designing a spacecraft, uh, and it was it was designed to go to the sun. And you had spent all this time and effort designing a, a solar shield to protect everything on the backside of it. And, and someone came to you and said, you know what we really need is we need a window that faces directly at the sun so that, you know, people could see it just to, to be able to look at it with their own eyes. Um, what, would, what, would you, what would you tell somebody who came to you with that, that particular request? Uh, I would make a periscope. That out at the edge of the heat shield, and I would have the periscope look, I would have it so that you could move it around the edge of the heat shield, so that you could look at the sun, and I would have the periscope have a really small surface area with a really nice camera. Maybe I'd do two or three of them so the system could be redundant. Uh, and then they could retract behind the heat shield so that most of the time they're not even exposed to the sun. Um, they're just available when you need them. That would be a brilliant idea, uh, and in fact, that's what's one of the one of the ways that the Parker Solar Probe uh, observes the sun is that it is that it has something that kind of peeks around the outside of the 
of the solar shields. Um, and it also uses, um, I forget the, the complete list of, of instruments that they have, but they use um, basically uh, blockers and, and various other things that sort of come into the periscope itself so that, you know, one instrument can look at the aurora without actually like being blinded by the sun. And, and that's all like fairly typical for even, uh, even scientific instruments that are in orbit around Earth that are ob observing the sun. Um, is that you, you want to have plenty of filters and that sort of thing. You would never, you would never want to design a window, especially, uh, so, so let's, let's say you could figure out the right kind of materials, um, so that, you know, you wouldn't worry about cooking the rest of the ship. Um, but then to have what appears to be some kind of, uh, I don't know, piezoelectric filter, maybe, uh, something like you would right. find on a 787 today. Um, where it's all computer controlled and all it's doing is changing the amount of light that can actually come through maybe like a, uh, like a crystal display or something. That's a, that's a single fault away, uh, from crisping everybody, uh, as, as happened on, on the Icarus one. Uh, and yep. that is, that is certainly not a thing that you would want in a habitable volume, uh, on your spacecraft. Right. But it makes but it really cool storytelling. Absolutely, absolutely, and and it starts to get at one of the one one of the things that I want to come back to is this decision to go to the Icarus one and whether Kappa was right or whether Mace was right. Um, I think the I think that the filmmakers are very clearly saying something is clearly going on with Cyril. Um, he's on this journey that is something like what happened to the crew of the Icarus one. He talked about being immersed in light. And how what that experience is like, and how sort of transformative it is for him. And then in the scene where they have to go and fix the shield on the ship, where the oxygen garden gets damaged, the captain gets killed. And one of the things Cyril says to the captain, and the captain basically the gets exposed to the full light of the sun. And Cyril says, "What do you see? What do you see?" And so he's having this, he's, he's just connecting with the sun in a way that doesn't seem healthy, right? His skin is damaged and, you know, his concern for his captain is what do you see when you look at the sun? And so there's this whole idea that uh, something happened on the Icarus one about looking at the sun and it's not good and it's not healthy, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, it sort of sets up Cyril in opposition uh, to... The, the person who we'll meet a little bit later in the movie, uh, Pinbacker, uh, who has that same experience uh, and takes it in a different direction, right? So, so you, could, you could read it as Cyril is, is just so in awe of that experience, right? And he wants to just understand it and like be immersed in it, uh, whereas Pinbacker is just like becomes obsessed with it, right? And wants to control it and to like, you know, to be the conduit for, uh, for, for his god, um, so since you bring up Cyril, I think this is, this is a good point to talk about some of the, some more of the psychology of, of this experience, um, which is, uh, so there's, there's a, there's a lot about this sort of like long duration space journey, uh, that, you know, tons and tons of people have spent a lot of time researching, um, and, you know, looking at, uh, what, what information we have from the International Space Station, various other long duration, uh, space missions, uh, but also a lot of analogs. Uh, here on Earth, uh, there are a number of uh, a number of places you could go to sign up to be an analog astronaut. Uh, there's a place called High Seas uh, that's in Hawaii. There's uh, the Mars Desert Research Station in Utah. There's the uh, Mars Arctic Research Station up on Devon Island. Antarctic uh, research missions are very similar. 
Um, and then you can also look at uh, some, some longer duration uh, sea voyages, uh, especially the farther you go back in time. Um, and the one, the one that that the one voyage that this movie makes me think of um, is the the voyage of the Fram um, to to the North Pole, as led uh, by Fridtjof Nansen. And um, the the Fram was later became famous as the vessel that took Roald Amundsen to the South Pole. Um, but before that, it was designed to be frozen. Well, into... took 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 him to Antarctica, not took him to the South Pole. But well, I, sure, I you know. If you if you uh, if you didn't have that pesky continent in the way, it, it would have gotten all the way there, I'm sure. Um, which is part of the part of the fun. So on this this uh, this polar journey to to the North Pole, um, the Fram was designed to be frozen into the polar ice uh, for uh, an unknown period of time. Uh, when they were laying out the mission, they 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 kind of looked at at polar ice drift, and this was back in the 1800s. Um, they looked at what they knew about polar ice drift at the time, and they said, well, if we get stuck in kind of somewhere north of Russia. Um, it might be two years, maybe three, four years, uh, something like that. Um, it'll probably drift us as close to the North Pole as we can get, and then we can hop out and get on dog sleds and like ride to the North Pole. Um, and this 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 particular journey is is interesting for a, a whole bunch of reasons that I don't have time to go into. I could talk about it forever, but um, the couple of things that stand out are um, one that this was a this ended up being about a three year journey um, that at the time was unique in that. Uh, nobody died, um, and in fact, almost everybody on the voyage uh, was about, th- I think it was 13 men uh, set out on this voyage. Almost everybody came back in, in as good or better health uh, than, than where, what they had left in, uh, with the exception of the ship's doctor, which is, which <laughs> is, where, which is where I find this, this parallel, because the doctor uh, on the from became so bored um, like nobody was getting injured. There was no scurvy. There was no like nothing. Everybody's having a, like they're having an okay time. A doctor decided to experiment on himself um, with uh, with opium. <laughs> you know, I've known people that have experimented themselves with opium, and it doesn't usually go well. Yeah, so you know, he's like you know, man of science or whatever in the 1800s, and he's like, well, you know, I'm just gonna. I got all this time on my hands, so like, surely I could like test, you know, what happens. Do I get addicted? How do I break the addiction? And like, of, like it's, of course, it's obvious. Like, he became addicted to opium, and he like stayed addicted for the rest of his life. Um, it's a terrible Whoops. thing. Um, but so you see, like this this parallel, right, with um, uh, with Searle, right? So it's like, what is he doing, right? He's the psychologist. So is he is he immersing himself in this experience because it's something new to psychology? This like, you know, you're getting close to the sun. This like the source of all life for humanity. Um, and like, what does it mean to him? Um, and, you know, and what does it mean? You know, this is why, you know, why he's asking Kanida, the captain, like, what do you see? Right. Is he, is he interested because he's obsessed? Is he interested because he's like a psychologist and he wants to know how Kanida is processing this? Um, probably some combination of those things. Um, so that's, that's kind of the, one of the, the pieces of, of this film that I find really compelling is just like that, you know how do you how do you respond to that isolation, um, and how do you respond to this like, like yes, spaceflight is a new experience, and there's a lot about it that's that's new and especially new just for humanity as a whole. But the this concept of getting close to the sun um, is is kind of like part of the core of of the the psychological thriller aspect of this movie. While a, a bunch of the crew are on board to Icarus One, the old Icarus, something happens. 
and the ships are disconnected. There's this beautiful, beautiful scene where they overlap the heat shields of the two ships and the habitable part of the Icarus 2 goes over and mates with the habitable part of the Icarus 1 and the crews can go across, but something, something disconnects the two ships. And now the crew goes out. the The crew that's on the old Icarus with the with all the dead bodies goes to the where the dock had been. And there's you know a hundred meters of of open vacuum between them and the first ship, uh, the the Icarus two, and they only have one spacesuit. Uh, there's this sort of hilariously sad, sadly hilarious conversation about what they're going to do. And it's funny because Mace, who kind of hates Kappa's guts, is like, well, we have to send Kappa over. He's the physicist. And the guy who's in charge is like, no, I have to go over because I'm the leader. And and Mace is like, you're a comms officer on a ship that has no comms. And we're a bomb. And this guy understands the bomb. He's got he's getting the the spacesuit. So they put him in a spacesuit and the other three people, and they only have enough uh Basically, they have to have somebody who has to stay behind and operate the, the hatch. And so Cyril uh, agrees to stay behind. And, and the other guys wrap themselves up in space material, in space insulation, basically. And then they open the hatch and Kappa goes over. And the rest of the crew basically is sort of like launched. The other three people are launched across, right? And two of the three people make it. And one of the three people... Is it is it three that were... It was Mace and... Uh, maybe only, oh, maybe only Mace makes it, but, uh, yeah, yeah, it was two, uh, two, yeah, two of the Harvey. Yeah. And Harvey, yeah. Harvey, Mace and Harvey grab onto, to the outside of the spacesuit all wrapped up in space blankets. Um, but only that Harvey, Harvey doesn't make it. Harvey does not make it. And this is where I want to talk about vacuum of outer space. And so, uh, many movies get this wrong, right? And, and it started with, the movie Outland, which is one of my favorite movies. It's Sean Connery on IO, uh, and it's basically High Noon, the old Gary Cooper movie, remade as a science fiction film. But in it, it has a scene where somebody's in a spacesuit in a vacuum, and their line gets cut, and they explode inside their spacesuit. And so down the years, there's been this idea that people explode, explode when they're exposed to the vacuum of space. And it's just not so. And you can actually, you can actually know this for a fact because if you basically, if you have one atmosphere of pressure inside you and you get exposed to a vacuum, then the, the difference in pressure between you and the outside world is one atmosphere, right? This experiment is actually done on a regular basis, unfortunately, by scuba divers. Um, if you are a scuba diver and you go down 30 feet, and you hold your breath, and you attempt to surface. First of all, don't do this. Um, all scuba diving can really be distilled down to more or less two facts. Uh, obey your charts and obey your trip computer when it tells you to surface, start surfacing in a way that it tells you to. And B, always keep breathing. It's really important that you maintain an equilibrium of pressure between what's inside your lungs and what's outside your body. Now, and that's not because you're going to explode if you don't. What happens is you tear the alveoli in your lungs. And uh, if you, if as little as a half atmosphere, so 15 feet down, there have been people who have been injured scuba diving when they come up from 15 feet down. If you hold your breath and you, and you surface, you can actually damage your lungs. If you hold your breath from 30 feet down, you can really damage your lungs. But again, 
you're going to damage your lungs. You're not going to explode. Nobody explodes when they come from 30 feet down to the surface. And that's why nobody explodes when they're exposed to the vacuum of space. It's just not done. It's bad for you. And their eyes don't even bug out like Arnold Schwarzenegger in, uh, in Total Recall, um, which, again, is a disappointment. Um, you know, it's, again, it's a cool scene, but uh, nowhere, nowhere near scientifically accurate. But they do freeze over, right? Yes. Because, because here's what's happening. So I've got to talk about how heat works in outer space because it works totally differently than it does on the surface of the Earth. On the surface of the Earth, you're surrounded by air. And so two things happen. Well, first of all, you're surrounded by physical matter and you can, uh, you can transfer heat through conduction from one solid surface to another. Most of the heat transfer that occurs on the Earth um, occurs through heating up of the air that surrounds us, and that's convection, right? And, and that is just the dominant heat transfer mechanism on Earth. But outer space has neither conduction nor convection. If you are, if you were made of ice, right? Imagine, uh, who's the guy in Thor, the rock guy in the Thor, uh, Rag, uh, Thor Ragnarok movie? It's Taika Waititi played, yeah. played him, yeah. I uh, can't yeah. remember his name, but, but yes. Yeah, anyhow, if you were that guy and you were in outer space, and w what would happen is the sun side of you would get hot slowly, and the side of you not facing the sun would get cold slowly. And if you spun yourself such that the hot side, you know, the hot side moved around, you'd get to sort of an ag average aggregate temperature. And around the distance of the Earth, it's more or less around freezing temperature. Between, between the Earth and the moon, that sort of aggregate average temperature for a body switches, um, falls below zero, which has profound implications on terrestrial uh, ecosystems. But uh, and by the time you get out to Jupiter, it's much, much colder, which is why everything in the Jovian system is is almost everything is pretty cold. But so if you're an object in outer space, your hot side is going to get hot and your cold side is going to get cold, but it's going to happen kind of slowly. Now, the closer you are to the sun, the faster the hot side is going to get fast and the higher the equilibrium temperature of your body is going to get. Um, but the, there's actually a fourth heat transfer mechanism. And I have to thank my friend, Mike Friend, for pointing it out to me the other day, which is state change, right? If you have an object and you're in outer space. And what did you look up the name of the guy from the Thor movie? Can no. Uh, so if he, if he was made of ice instead of rock, one of the ways that you might have heat transfer is that the sun side of a thing might, uh, the ice might, what's called sublimate, which is where the ice goes from a solid to a gas. You give up energy when you sublimate. So uh, it's a way to stay cool. And it's much like uh, sweating on the human body where we have moisture on the surface and that evaporates and that cools us off. And comets, uh, this is when you see the tail behind a comet, what you're basically seeing is the surface of the comet that has evaporated off and formed a gas and the gas is trailing behind the comet. And so uh, the converse of that also works though. On the cold side of a body, if you had liquid on the surface, it would freeze solid. So your eyes would freeze over, uh, the surface of your lungs would start to freeze on the cold side. On the hot side, any moisture on your skin would start to evaporate out. So it would dry off very, very quickly. And in fact, vacuum freezing of food is a way that you essentially suck the moisture out of things and the, and the moisture over time evaporates off the body. And this would happen to people too. So your lungs would be in bad shape from the over or from the under pressure of the vacuum. And your eyes would freeze over and you'd get ice in your lungs and you'd get ice on your skin. But you wouldn't explode and you wouldn't, you know, in the movie, 
Harvey basically freezes solid. And then there's a quick little scene, right, where he passes out behind the shadow of the shield and he instantly gets burnt to a crisp, right? They just go up and show him just go like, poof, goes poof. he's gone. Yeah. Right? yeah. Yes. And, yeah. and it wouldn't happen that way. People don't, you know, unless you were right near the sun, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't just go poof. It makes for a cool visual. Um, Korg. Korg was the name of the, uh, the rock Korg. in Thor yes. Ragnarok. Um, there's a couple other things that happen to you in vacuum, um, or, or just, you know, in the scuba diving example as well, is, is you can have um, uh, various types of decompression sickness, which you can also get if, if you know, you, you fly from, like, you know, L.A. to, to the Rockies and, and decide to go climb Pikes Peak, for example, um, is you get, you know, some of the nitrogen in your blood will come out of solution, um, and it'll nitrogenate your blood, and, and uh, that's not good for you. Um, you can get... Um, get severe headaches, you can get embolisms, um, you can get uh, some other Which kind of nasty stuff. Oh, yeah, uh, and, and, and has. Um, you know, they used to... Um, there's a yeah a number, number of different ways that that, that that could hurt you, but most of them don't look as cool on film uh, as freezing solid and then having your arm shattered off uh, when it bumps into something. Um, I mean, I did like the, you know, the, the preparations that they did for, for this unsuited transit uh, were great. Right, they wrapped they wrap themselves in reflective fabric, right? So that will fr- reflect the heat from their bodies back on themselves for a little bit, um, and then uh, they kept their eyes shut and they were exhaling. So that that kind of yep. covers that they, they did the best they could with what they had. Um, it was pretty 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 well done. And, and if you ever find yourself having to transit a vacuum, yes, closing your eyes and uh, and leaving your leaving your lungs uh, open. You know, leaving your mouth open and exhaling. Uh, that would be the way to minimize the amount of damage that yeah. you would do to yourself. But you wouldn't you wouldn't last very long. And it's interesting to well, compare... Mostly because you wouldn't last very long without being able to breathe. Well, right? sure, just that, like, that, that just helps. Like anyplace yeah. else. Uh, it's interesting to compare that, that example of heat transfer to uh, what happens to uh, Captain America um, as he, as he um, jumps into the cooling liquid. Um, right. Uh, so Chris oh, Evans jumps into the cooling right. liquid to try and pull the supercomputers back down into this stuff. And, um, I don't recall seeing how cold that stuff was supposed to be. Um, but that's convection, right? That's the thing that's, you know, if I, you know, if, as, as you and I live in the Pacific Northwest, right? If we, if we were to jump directly into Puget Sound, uh, or into the Pacific Ocean where we live and spend not that long, in water that is what 60 degrees um we would quickly uh get hypothermic and die uh and and this stuff one presumes is quite a bit colder than that uh and he spends a lot of time in there uh which of course is is how you know in uh, how 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 he can then later survive uh as captain america himself uh, when he gets frozen in the ice but that's a different movie uh, i like the idea that uh mace goes on to become captain america although uh he, he he doesn't seem to survive the uh, the bath in the cold in the cold water. But yeah, no cold water can really get you. And in fact, I've been diving. You and I have a mutual friend that uh, I went diving with, and I was wearing ten millimeter neoprene, and he was wearing I think five millimeter neoprene. And it was just off West Seattle, like it wasn't it wasn't any place crazy. But he got deeply cold, like really really cold. And at core, you know, one of those things where he was all blanketed up afterwards and couldn't stop shivering, and you know. All this kind of stuff. So yeah, it's uh, the liquids have a really good heat transfer, and, and poor Mace has a has a bad experience. So we find out that the reason that the ship's decoupled is that 
somebody survived from the Icarus one, a guy named Pinbacker, which is a homage inside the movie to movie fans of a 1973, 1974 film called Dark Star, which was made with about a $4 budget. It's a lot of the, uh, some of the people who were in the original Alien movie a few years later would go on to make Alien with a much larger budget. But there's a character named Pinback, and so they named this guy Pinbacker, which is, for those of us who are film nerds, kind of kind of fun. Dark, but, Dark Star might be a fun, uh, so, fun movie for us to do in, in the future. Um, on this. Oh my God, I would love yeah. that. I mean, it's, you know, yeah, it's John Carpenter, it's Dan O'Bannon, it's like all these people who went on to do amazing stuff. And like I said, about a $14 budget. Literally, a beach ball at one point represents an alien. Imagine if the alien in Alien had looked like a beach ball instead of the xenomorph that it was. And you get some idea of what Dark Star might might be a little bit like. Uh, okay, so Pinbacker survived. And there's this, there's this <laughs> great slash crazy scene where Kappa is talking to the ship's computer. And uh, they're now down to four crew members, he thinks. And the computer says, no, there's five. And Kappa's like, what? Where's the, where's the fifth crew? Who's the fifth crew member? And the computer says, I don't know. And, he, and then he says, where's the fifth crew member? And the computer says, in the sunroom. Uh, what, what, what would you do in that situation, Tim? Um, well, gosh. Um, I, I think I would sort of stand around for a while and try and, and, try and figure out just what the heck was going on. Because uh, where, where could this person have come from? Um, and I think in, in Kappa's case, right, as a as a physicist, you have to assume that he kind of, you know, he literally did the math, right? He's like, well, there's nobody else, couldn't have been anybody else from our ship. The only other place, right, it's not, you know, they were joking about aliens earlier in the movie, but like, you know, they don't know that they're in a science fiction movie. So, um, you know, aliens isn't the place where they would go to. Maybe this person came from the other ship, right? And maybe that's that's where he went to in his mind is, is you know, someone from the other ship survived. Can, can, can I add to my question? Uh, can I point out that there's an intercom system? We've already established early in the movie. There's an intercom system that you can use to page the rest of the crew to go any place you want just by going to the intercom system. So again, uh, you've, got, you've got a number of options, but I kind of think maybe what I would do is say, uh, like if you and I were on the spaceship and it said, uh, no, Tola, there's three people on board. I'd be like, uh, attention, Tim, Tim. <laughs> Uh, just the computer everybody. says there's a third guy on the ship. Can can you and I meet up in the sunroom and figure out what's going on? Yeah. That's what I personally would do in that got, situation. But help, it's not right. And and Mace is still around at this point, right? It's it's Mace and Kappa and the Michelle and Cassie, uh, and Cassie still there, right? Yep. And uh, yeah, and it and it's before Corazon is is killed as well. So they got they got people. They could overpower them. Yeah, they got a bunch of people. Yep. Uh, or at least to let them know, like, hey, guys, there's this weird thing. The computer just told me the weirdest thing. It says there's a fifth person on board. But that's not what he does. No, because he wants to go investigate. and Because uh, he's, he's a scientist. Because he's a scientist, right? How could, how could whatever, whatever's in there, how could it possibly be dangerous? Because right. they're, they're in space. Mace, they're of course. Like 93 million yeah. miles from Earth. What could be wrong? Right. Mace would have, there's a procedure, I'm sure. Uh, in an emergency, and Mace would have followed the procedure, and I'm sure the procedure would have said, "Tell everybody, sound the alarm, you know, whatever, blah blah blah." Yeah, and yeah, he opens uh, up yeah, the book no, that Kappa says, that. "So you've been boarded by space pirates," and he follows, you know, follows <laughs> the procedure in the space pirates procedure. Right. It's like choose your own adventure. If you've been boarded by space pirates, please go to page eighty-seven. 
And yeah. you turn to page 87 and it says, you call you call the rest of your crew. So Kappa doesn't do that. He goes to uh, the sunroom where a completely insane pinbacker, who was the captain of the previous mission, is there. And pinbacker babbles about God and man and dust and uh, then tries to kill Kappa and then kills uh, Corazon and uh, tries to kill Cassie and uh, sets things up such that Mace dies trying to undo the damage that, that Pinbacker did. So Pinbacker's basically like, the sun is a god, he's a jealous god, I want him all to myself, you guys don't get him, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop you, you're going to mess with god, and I'm going to keep you from doing that, and so I'm going to kill you all. More or less, like doesn't say it exactly. Yeah, that way. yeah. He, I mean, he basically says God has decided that humanity needs to die, and I'm the last. I'm going to be the last man. Uh, so sorry, you all have to die now. Uh, and I'm going to have yeah. God all to myself. Yeah, yeah. Now here's here here to me is the fundamental question in the movie. This comes back to we talked earlier about Kappa versus Mace and uh, their debate about whether to go to the Icarus One, and we talked about Searle and how he was having. You know, things were getting weird with Searle. My question for you is, if Icarus 2 had not gone back and intercepted Icarus 1, would it have shared the same fate? Would Searle have eventually gone insane? Or maybe they all would go insane. But, you know, there would have been enough time to leisurely get to the sun and people go insane and the ship winds up just like the Icarus 1. Everybody decides to kill themselves and the mission is unsuccessful. Because... If that's true, if Cyril was on a trajectory somewhat like Pinbacker, then Kappa was right to go to the Icarus One to try to understand what was going on, right? Because he basically would have discovered a heretofore unknown failure mode. We talk in engineering about what are the failure modes, right? Insanity was not thought to be one of the failure modes on these kinds of missions, right? So so if Cyril was, was on a trajectory like Pinbacker, then Kappa was right to go to the Icarus One. But if Cyril was not on a trajectory like Pinbacker, then Mace was right. They should have just kept on with their mission and everything would have been fine and maybe they all would have lived, right? Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, so, so there's I sort of two answers, right? So there's, there's the, like, the answer based on what we see on screen uh, and then there's the answer that you can glean from some of the backstory and some of the, 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 the Blu-ray commentary. And, and, and this, is, this is actually a distinction that, um, you know, that Roger Ebert had talked about um, uh, a long time ago, I, I had the opportunity to to do these like cinema interruptus, uh, attending cinema interruptus events uh, in Boulder, Colorado, where uh, Roger Ebert would walk through a movie scene by scene, um, and people could ask to stop the movie and and ask questions or or point things out. And and whenever someone would would break in with a well, in the book version, it means this, or uh, you know, in the in the screenplay, it actually says that. Uh, Roger would always reply with, "Okay, well, let's just this is a movie." We're not we're not critiquing the book. We're not critiquing the screenplay. We're not critiquing the backstory. Right? What's right. on the screen is what we have, and that's our interpretation mm-hmm. of what's on the screen. So, so what do you see in in this behavior of Cyril? Is that he seems a little a little off? Certainly, a little obsessed, a little unhinged. But to me, it doesn't read as on the way to wanting to murder the entire crew and stop the mission, um, right? He's okay. obsessed with the sun, um, right? He's obsessed with this experience, but but not to the point of, it certainly doesn't look like it's to the point of worship um, and not to the point of, of uh, destructive obsession. 
you don't see that on the I don't see that on the screen. So who was right in Kappa versus Mace? Should they have gone back to the Icarus one, or should they have not gone to the Icarus one? If we rewind right back to the point where they decide to change trajectories, right? Because that's where everything starts going wrong. If you don't if you don't change trajectories, then you don't damage the vehicle and you don't start to run out of oxygen. And then it's really just a question of do you want the extra bomb or not? Which they didn't need in the end. Which they didn't need in the end because it worked fine. Uh, which which we see when the when the sun comes up over Sydney Harbor. Um, but if you you know if you Monday morning morning quarterback the thing, you say well, no, they they would have been perfectly fine, uh, just going on their merry way. Um, you know, wondering what happened to the Icarus One. So, in your example about Roger Ebert and only knowing what we have on the screen in front of us, I, I, I do think it's worth understanding what the director says about what they were intending to do, right? Mm-hmm. And Wikipedia says the director also described the potentially unrealistic presence of Pinbacker as an example of something that breaks the pattern of realism, similar to his scene in Train Spotting, in which Ewan McGregor's character dives into a toilet. <laughs> so uh, what to make of that, right? So you've had a movie where you've hired a really good uh, scientist to try to make everything as realistic as possible. And you've given, you know, you've invented a, a physics MacGuffin and you've, you know, you've, you've, you've thought out your ship and all this kind of stuff. And then the director says, yeah, and then I kind of wanted to go in a different direction. Because the criticism of this movie is that the last third of the movie is very different than the first two thirds, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, this whole thing with Cyril and where was Cyril going and the worship of the sun is, in my, for me, is an attempt to try to assume that, Boyle wasn't just trying to make two different films, right? That there was a that there was a narrative connection to the last third uh, from the first two thirds. That it wasn't just a disconnect where it's like, okay, I'm going to give you guys, you know, like Full Metal Jacket is essentially two separate one hour films, <laughs> right? Connected, yeah. connected at the middle, right? Um, but uh, so, so, what do you make of that statement that it was intending to sort of move away from realism? Yeah. And and he, and he does build on it too, right? Because it's it's not just Cyril, right? You see at the at the beginning of the movie, you see Canada in in the sunroom, right? Uh, he's sort of trying to immerse himself in that experience as well. So he's he's laying those breadcrumbs, and you know, or Alex Garland is laying those breadcrumbs as he's telling the story. Um, and so yeah, you have to wonder, right? What is you know what is the you know when a director does something like that where the, where where he breaks the realism of it. Um, you know, in this case, you could you could read it a couple different ways. You can read it as as purely the psychological aspect of it, right? So when every time you see Pinbacker on screen, the, the the visuals are distorted, the audio is distorted, right? And you know, is that a direct representation of he has disconnected himself from his humanity, from his you know connection with the rest of of the rest of the human race? Is it a you know is is there some you know some physics connection to it right is is it a little bit of the the kind of the land of woo woo that people tend to get into when they you know if if you if you start talking about quantum physics and they're like oh well quantum physics will like change the way that you like feel about the universe and whatever um, and a, you know is there some of that that you that that's trying to be expressed on the screen or you know simply as we get towards the end of the movie and is is actually uh, sort of presaged in the computer simulation. Um, of how the bomb is making its way closer and closer to the sun is do you actually distort time and space, um, right? Do you have a, you know, Star Trek four type experience of like, okay, time's going to be twisted and, and weird things are going to happen. 
Um, is that part of what he's trying to show on the screen? Or is it just, you know, a combination of all those things? Like, Pinbacker is just this, like, this creepy, weird guy, and it's it's intended to be part of the horror, the horror of his experience uh, shown on screen. Well, and, you know, you mentioned early isolation and the effects of isolation. You came back to it later. You know, Pinbacker is the ultimate isolation example, right? He's been by himself uh, farther, you know, he's been the most alone person in human history, right? Being 93 million miles away from another human being for the better part of seven years. And he's gone completely, completely insane. I mean, and, and they film it in such a way that you don't even know it's Mark Strong. Like, Mark Strong is is a actor that you know it's Mark Strong when you see Mark Strong in a film. Yeah. I mean, he's yeah. a very, very strong uh, presence. He's like a Sean Connery-type character. And yet, you don't even know. You, you can tell afterwards. If somebody tells you, oh, yeah, that's Mark Strong, you're like, okay, sure. But, like, you don't even see him well enough to have any idea who the actor is, right? Somebody could be like, oh, yeah, that's Ian McKellen. And you're like, huh, Really? That's a stretch, but sure, okay, yeah. He's, he's a you know he's a man of many faces, sure. Yeah. So anyhow, Pinbacker tries to kill everybody, and uh, there's a climactic fight in the bomb bay, and because they're getting close to the sun, the guys are getting kind of knocked around in a way that it has a dreamy feel to it. Because if they really are in a bomb bay that's the size of Manhattan, if you if you start sliding in a bomb bay that's the size of Manhattan, you're going to slide for a long time, and then you're going to be far away from where you started. And I just felt like the whole last 10 minutes it lost some of the grounded realism of the early part of the movie. And so, yeah, they're fighting on this cube, this bomb cube that's kind of moving around. And it just, it just all, I mean, there's some beautiful visuals, right? There's Pinbacker in the distance struggling his way towards Kappa. And you know, it's going to be bad when he gets there. Right. But he's off in the distance and he's coming towards you. And it's a really nice threat uh, imagery, but like the whole thing, I don't know, to, to me felt so, quite dreamy. Certainly, yeah, dreamy and 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 again that that sort of like horror movie type uh, type storytelling um, at that point. I mean, even you know, even even to the to the trope of you know you have you know Cassie is in there right and and she sort of loses you know her identity at that point right. She she just becomes the girl to save, um, which is which is a really unfortunate choice in in storytelling there because you sort of lose track of her at the end. Even um, she becomes unimportant to the story. Um, where like, she's like, she's the navigator for the ship. Like she has, she has a lot of power on, in the, you know, in the, in the overall mission itself. Um, but it, but it is that kind of like, it's, uh, yeah, it feels like something out of a, out of a horror film, um, where it, it becomes almost a, a lot about the, the psychology of the experience, um, than, than about what's actually happening in, in time and space. And then, and so then Kappa goes and detonates the bomb and everybody's, and everybody on board is dead, but all the humans back on Earth are going to have a future because the bomb went off. And they flash back to Kappa's message that he sent to Earth right before they lost comms. And, you know, uh, and it's a, it's a cute little flashback to the beginning of the film. And scene. And science uh, saves the day. So one of the things we're going to try to do uh, Tim and I have decided that we're going to uh, try to give a little summary evaluation of three aspects of each film that we review. And we talked about science uh, fiction film. We're, you know, we're reviewing science fiction films. So science, uh, the, uh, do they get the science right? How well did they get the science right? Fiction, 
how does it work as a narrative device? And then film, how does it work uniquely to the film medium and the things that you can do in a movie that you can't do in a book or a painting or an audio series or whatever? So I don't know, 100 points, uh, percentage score, uh, science. How, do, how, does it, how does it do on the science for you? I, th- I think over, overall, uh, we'll, we'll give it, uh, I'll give it maybe like a 75% on, on the science. The bits with, you know, not really explaining how the sun has stopped and, and whatever else. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the few, you know, a few excursions away from, from how, you know, things like, like radiation and, and, uh, convective cooling, whatever else you were talking about earlier. Um, I think those, those kind of knock some points off, but, but, you know, a good, a good solid, uh, yeah, 75% on science, I would say. Yeah, I was, I was going to say 80%. So I'm in the same ballpark as you. I think a genuine attempt was made to fit the film within the scientific universe. I mean, it's not a fantasy film, right? It's not a film that has wizards that use magic to uh, accomplish science fiction-y things. Or even warp drive, Uh, So yes, There's nothing, you know, there's nothing too too outside of what our current understanding of how things work. No, it's true. Nothing in this film is explicitly, overtly impossible to occur. Although, by the time you get close to the surface of the sun, the the thermal transfer is just really amazing i mean it's it's hard to believe you could make a a really really good uh shield to keep the the radiation out but whatever um all right how does it work in terms of fiction as a story as a story um as a story i think i, I give it a 90 percent um right? i think this is this is really you know for me this is a it's a psychological thriller first and foremost um and it does that it does that very well um and, you know, the places where I think the story falters, you know, for me is, is one, you know, when there's, there's just sort of two, two things that really jump out from, from the storytelling. One is, is just the fire in the oxygen garden. For me, I could see no link on the screen um, between what was happening outside the vehicle and the fire in the oxygen garden, which is so important to, to the rest of the story. Um, so that was thing one. Um, and then thing two is, is what I mentioned earlier, just sort of towards the end of the film, um, you know, uh, Cassie in particular, but I, but I think actually, you know, both of the women astronauts on, on board, um, their roles are, 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 are fairly narrow. Um, and, you know, I think, uh, I think Corazon in, in particular got a little pigeonholed, um, in terms of, you know, her, her whole thing was the oxygen garden, right? And she has sort of no, no, uh, no drive outside of that. Although it is interesting to point out that, that, um, I think in the script, there was a, uh, more of a love story, uh, between, uh, between Kappa and Cassie. And you sort of see some of that come across, or there's a, there's definitely a connection uh-huh. on screen, which is really well, nice. Well, they show, they show them, in, they show them in bed together. They show them in the in quarters together, um, but uh, but never never romantically entangled, um, which I think is actually kind of nice in a story like this. They have a connection. Maybe they had a romantic connection. Maybe not. It it didn't. It wasn't necessary for the story, and so it wasn't. It didn't feel like it was shoehorned in. Sure. You know, there's no there's no like majestic like you know majestic background music as they kiss for the last time or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah fair you don't need it. Fair you don't need yep. it for the story. Yep. They're, um, they're professionals who may yes. or may not be. They're professionals who may or may not be sleeping together. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So ninety percent on on story. All right. I'm going to give it seventy percent on story. Um, I I really I feel like the fact that we have to talk about what the intent was outside the film uh, and and try to and try to reconstruct what was going on by what people have said outside um, hurts hurts it as a narrative vehicle for me. I feel like the stuff with Pinbacker 
late in the movie is a shift that I just have a really, I have a hard time with. I think that Kappa and Mace are well done characters. I think Cassie's actually a pretty well done character. Um, they waste, I mean, Michelle Yeoh is one of the 20 or 30 best actors on screen currently. And I feel like they really waste her potential. It'd be like having Ian McKellen in your film. And he's like this kind of minor character who does a couple of things and then sloughs off screen. And you're like, oh man, you could have done so much more. So I liked it. Um, I, you know, I'm going to give it a higher score on the film side because it was beautiful and, and all this kind of stuff. But I just feel as a, as a narrative work, there's just a lot of head scratcher moments for me. There were things that were good. So I don't consider, I mean, 70 is like a C uh, for me and you know that part of the film I think is only sea level I think that they could have done more I do think you know you mentioned sort of the uh, missed opportunities with Cassie's character I think that there's a case that can be made that Boyle is a somewhat traditionalist storyteller right like his his films I mean that's how that's been the knock against Slumdog Millionaire right um, is it just it references back to a lot of you know 20th century tropes that I mean, I liked I liked Slumdog Millionaire, but I understand the criticisms of it, and I, I think this film has some of it. So, uh, I, I it did not work as well as a for a narrative arc for me as it did for you. So, you give it ninety, I give it seventy. You know, we'll split the difference and, and call it eighty. Now, uh, the last one is film. How do you feel it did as the making the most of being a film, not a book or a you know whatever? Audio, yeah, I audio think story, um, podcast. Yeah. I, um... This one's a little harder, so I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can talk myself into it, which is, um, first of all, it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. Uh, I mean, this was probably the first Blu-ray that, I've, that I ever purchased. Um, and, and I purchased Me too. This. Me too. It was the first Blu-ray I bought it right after I got uh, something that would play Blu-rays. Yeah, specifically to see the, the scene of, of, the Merc- of Mercury transiting in front of the sun. Um, and it's just just gorgeous, and and you know all that was actually computer generated, um, and we and we have images um, that were um, from the Parker Solar Probe from recent years that are actually pretty darn close to to what was shown on screen, which is which is pretty fantastic. So beautiful story to, like beautiful visual storytelling, and uh, yeah, I think just great great use of of the film medium to um, to put this story together. I think there's maybe maybe a couple of places where they got again. I, I just have to go go back to that like how did the oxygen garden catch on fire? But I think that's one thing out of many, and and uh, I'm probably going to end up somewhere around a ninety percent on on film. Yeah, um, I, I, I'm going to go I'm going to go one step further and say ninety five percent. I just think this is a beautiful film in the same way that two thousand and one is a beautiful film. The Mercury transiting the sun scene with the great. Um, soundtrack behind it is one of the all-time great scenes in any science fiction film even though nothing happens in the traditional sense it's just so beautiful it reminds me of some of the most beautiful images out of close encounters which is another science fiction film that's just just lovely to watch that i can just there are scenes i can watch over and over and over and over and over again and uh sunshine has has that for me um even the stuff at the end as much as the narrative stuff is head scratching you know, as the as the Icarus two is getting buffeted by you know solar wind and it's approaching the surface of the sun, it's gorgeous. And when the bomb, when Kappa finally triggers the bomb, it's really beautiful. 
uh, just that whole thing is is you know I it's hard for me to think of a film a science fiction film that's better looking than this movie. Yeah. Although Blade Runner, I mean Blade Runner in two thousand and one would be the would be the obvious benchmarks to compare to. Well, and and you you mentioned the the soundtrack. I mean, the soundtrack by Underworld, right, is just just fantastic, right? I mean, I mean, just a classic classic band, but just the the way they were able to adapt their music to this this particular film was was just wonderful. It's an amazing soundtrack. Is that soundtrack available like on Spotify and all those kinds of services? Uh, I don't know. Well, I don't have to. Uh, I don't use those, but uh, I, I have I have a copy of it from iTunes, probably. Ooh iTunes, you say. Oh, that's one of those yes. Apple products. Yeah. Uh, that's one of those. All right. Well, we're coming up on an hour and a half, and I think we've uh, we've reached a, a nice concluding point. Tim and I have decided that our next film is going to be Ad Astra, which is uh, a, a – I can't wait to discuss Ad Astra. This is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, Ad Astra is, is a movie that swings for the fences, to be sure. Another film where the director – stated ahead during and after that scientific accuracy was an important aspect of the film, uh, which is why it'll be fun to review it. Uh, Tim, any closing, any closing thoughts for our audience before we sign off on our first podcast? I think, uh, yeah, I think this, this, this film has been a great, a great place to start and, and that it did a fantastic job. I think of meeting that, finding that right balance between good storytelling, good, good filmmaking and, uh, being accurate to, to science and engineering, um, showing that you can you can do most of those things all at once, um, especially if you're if you're Danny Boyle uh, and Alex Garland. And so I'm a very interested. I've never seen Ad Astra, uh, and so I am very interested to uh, to see this and uh, you know see how it compares. It'll be interesting. Thank you so much for listening to the first episode of the Monty Hall Effect. People have asked us, why is it called the Monty Hall Effect? Why indeed. Our musical themes were written and performed by Guy Ellis. If you have any thoughts, feedback, or questions about the podcast, you can contact us or find out more about us at the Monty Hall Effect podcast page on Buzzsprout. Thanks, and keep watching science fiction films. Thanks.